3: There are still a lot of unanswered questions about what happened on the 6th itself, whether that's what they will take up in um, September, I don't know. Um, The other thing I would be curious to know if they will return to in more detail are some of these questions around sort of what were the failures that made the insurrection sort of as uh, as serious as it was um, in terms of things around the delay in having the National Guard come to the Capitol and that sort of thing.
0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 12th, 2022. The January 6th Select Committee has wrapped up its first spree of hearings and it has announced a second set of hearings when Congress returns in September. The month of lull gives us a good opportunity to assess where the committee has come so far and where it might be going. Joining me in a live Twitter space on Thursday were Lawfare's executive editor, Natalie Orpet, Lawfare's senior editors, Quinta Jurassic and Molly Reynolds. Reading questions from the audience was Tyler McBrien, Lawfare's managing editor. We covered a lot of ground. What has the committee accomplished institutionally? What has it accomplished from an adding new evidence point of view? What is the purpose of this next round of hearings it has announced and what relationship does this investigation have to the justice department's recent spree of activities it's the lawfare podcast August 12th the past and future of the January 6th committee Molly get us started you and Quinto wrote a piece kind of assessing The committee's performance, just at an institutional level, leaving the evidence they presented aside,
3: how do you assess their performance? So, institutionally, I think they did quite well. Um, but as Quinton and I point out in um, the piece you just referenced, the ways in which they did quite well are of limited applicability to uh, other things Congress might do. So let me start by just kind of explaining some of the ways in which this set of hearings are really unlike most of what we see from Congress. Um, so Probably very notably, uh, we talked about a lot, was the really heavy use of visual aids and video clips. This is not entirely new. Uh, Folks who paid close attention to the Trump impeachment proceedings, both the hearings in the Judiciary Committee for the first uh, Trump impeachment, and then the actual presentation of the evidence on the floor of the the Senate uh, during the second Trump impeachment trial. Those also involved a lot of video evidence. We also saw the committee really break from the traditional congressional format. So If you are not a person who has to watch congressional hearings often, you might not know that usually what happens is that there is a five-minute opening statement from the chairman who's a member of the majority party. There is a five-minute opening statement from the ranking member who is of the minority party. And then they're alternating strictly enforced five-minute question periods, alternating by party. The January 6th committee kind of threw that all out the window. They had extended opening statements generally from both the chair, uh, Benny Thompson, a Democrat, and the vice chair, Liz Cheney, a Republican. They designated particular members um, of the committee to lead each hearing. Those folks spoke at great length um, from a teleprompter. Uh, they, they, I think some folks found that kind of odd, but it really did add to the, the level of, um, of polish that the hearings had. And then um, and maybe the last thing I'll say on this institutional question is the degree to which members were really willing to delegate to their colleagues, really give their colleagues the spotlight. So this was particularly notable in a, a on the partisan dimension, so more than once the hearings featured really extended speeches from Vice Chair Cheney and um, from Adam Kinzinger, Republican of Illinois, uh, including the last hearing where, which was basically chaired by uh, Congresswoman Cheney. That was in part because Betty Thompson had COVID um, and so was not physically present. But you know, in any basically any other congressional hearing. If the chair is absent, then the most senior member of the majority party is the one who would lead the hearing. So this is a really, um, really kind of remarkable departure from usual sort of partisan organization in Congress. But even uh, beyond that partisan dimension, just the fact that members who are, you know, we're talking about members of Congress here. They're politically ambitious seekers of the limelight by their very nature. So the idea that they would just sit there. While and not speak in a ninety minute, two hour, two and a half hour hearing, while only their colleague spoke, is a pretty remarkable, I think, signal of kind of how seriously everyone involved was taking these hearings as a public presentation of the evidence. I think Quinta's going to talk about what that evidence was in a minute, but just the the degree to which for kind of institutional reasons, they were willing to take this really big departure from how Congress normally does its business. Uh, we could talk more later about kind of why some of these choices will not work uh, in other settings in Congress. But I do think it's important really to underline the ways in which this was really different than what we're used to seeing. Yeah, and I'm
0: I'm interested before we before we move on in one of the Potential downsides of this model that has bothered me since the beginning of these hearings, which is you know the transformation of a congressional hearing into a kind of extended press conference rather than an investigative enterprise where you're actually doing the investigation before the public yeah i I forget which of the founders called the the house of representatives the grand inquisition of the of the nation or something but this isn't that this is a kind of public pageant of the presentation of evidence and i'm wondering if you worry at all that this sets a standard in which you kind of do the investigation in secret and then the hearings are for the presentation of the evidence rather than the hearings as in Watergate, are the gathering of the evidence itself?
3: Yeah, I guess I'll say a couple of things on that. So one is that I think there's real value in Congress doing kind of presentations of the evidence, as, as you've put it. Uh, Josh Chaffetz, who's a law professor at Georgetown, who's been a guest um, on the, the Lawfare podcast a couple of times, refers to this practice as, quote, congressional overspeech. Um, and I think there is really a place for that in the current Congress. We live in a world that's so profoundly different politically, institutionally from the one that we lived in during the Watergate hearings that I'm not sure, I think in some ways, expecting today's Congress to operate in the same way that the Congress of the early 1970s did is just a kind of a recipe for um, for disappointment. One thing I'll say about this investigation specifically that I think means that kind of investigating behind the scenes um, and then doing uh, using the hearings as a public presentation of evidence, it's really important, is that while this is may be slowly changing as we learn more and more about what a grand jury is hearing evidence on. There is a a real possibility, and Quint and I talk about this in our piece, that this is the only investigation that will ever produce a Magnitude of public information that really tells as much of the story of what happened on January sixth as possible. So the grand jury may hear lots of lots of evidence and ultimately not, you know, bring charges of any kind. And as a result, we'll never know, um, or we'll know only what folks choose to leak about what that part of the investigation found. Whereas from the very beginning, it was a a necessary not necessarily sufficient, but a necessary condition of this congressional investigation, that it would produce a massive amount of public information. And so I think that it's given kind of the space that it occupies in this particular situation, that kind of using its public time, its hearing time to focus on the presentation of evidence, I think concerns me less than it might under a different fact pattern.
1: Natalie, you have thoughts on this? Yeah, I just wanted to mention one quick thing, which is that I think really the fairer comparison here is to a report, a written report. And this is really just a very innovative way to use what is a public and multimedia presentation that, frankly, people are likely people, meaning the American people and not just sort of uh, people who are close followers of Congress or who are closely following uh, January 6th developments themselves. Are, are likely to consume, and I think that that's a, i think that 's valuable for all the reasons that Molly said, but it 's also really reflected in the way that the committee has conducted itself in this as you as you say a really clear coherent narrative that is is scripted and has themes um, it 's really sort of an oral report
0: so Quinta talk to us about the substance of the committee's presentation overall there was a a general sense that we kind of knew the story already. And then the committee presented this raft of detail about every aspect of the story that was so rich that it actually felt qualitatively different from what we knew before. What do you make of it? What did the committee other than a sort of shock and awe level of details, many of them embarrassing to the uh, individuals about whom they concerned, particularly Donald Trump. What did the committee really add to our substantive understanding of the post-election and 1-6 period?
4: Sure. So let me speak to that substantive question. And then I I also want to speak to your question about the way the committee presented the information and how they used hearings. On the substantive issue, I think you're certainly right that, you know, I, I was among the many people who wrote before the hearings began essentially saying, look, you know, if you're expecting a smoking gun, maybe calm down a little bit. There is nothing that we could know that could possibly be more damning than the fact that Trump essentially encouraged people to march to march to the Capitol and then live tweeted an insurrection and did nothing to stop it until it was too late. I think it's it's certainly still true that the committee hasn't produced anything that is uh, quite on the level of live tweeting the insurrection with encouragement, but that's not the committee's fault. That's Donald Trump's, and what the committee has done. Thoroughly and pretty relentlessly, honestly, is build the evidence about what Trump knew, what, what he knew and when he knew it, to, to quote that line from from Watergate. So they have built evidence that he knew that he lost the election, that he was told repeatedly that he lost the election by basically everybody around him, with the exception of a few people who were, uh, let's say, marching to the beat of a different drummer like Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell that there's some indication that he acknowledged this, uh, that he told Justice Department officials at one point, you don't have to, you know find fraud or hold a press conference, just say there was fraud, and I'll do the rest. They've shown that Trump was centrally involved in a lot of the efforts to overturn the election. So I think there were there were questions about, you know, to one extent, or, were those actions people sort of, uh, not to Godwin's law ourselves, but, you know, working toward the Fuhrer, <laughs> uh, essentially trying to do what Trump wanted without him giving direct instruction? I think the committee has shown that in many of those instances, those actions were with the direct knowledge and encouragement and sometimes even orders of Trump personally and um, or, the, or the people closest around him. I will say the thing that I personally have found the most striking is the evidence that Trump knew and seemed to plan to sick the mob on the Capitol that day. On January 6th, if listeners remember, uh, what, what happened was that Trump gave his speech at the Ellipse uh, late that morning, early afternoon, and said, you know, maybe we'll we'll march down to the Capitol and then sort of went on to continue his speech. After the end of the speech, he went back to the White House. The crowd moved toward the Capitol and and became an insurrection. Um, and I personally had thought at the time, well, we don't know whether that was a plan on Trump's part or whether that was just, you know, a, a riff in the way that he tends to riff about things like police brutality or water pressure, for example, And the fact that he'd gone back to the White House seemed to me at the time to indicate maybe it really was a riff. Now, what the committee has shown is that there are emails uh, among the Trump team essentially saying that it was Trump's plan to say that people should go down to the Capitol and that the plan was to make it look like he had said that off the cuff. Uh, We know that he was angry when the Secret Service refused to take him. To the Capitol, and at the very least, uh, there were uh, irate words discussed in in the the car that he was in. Uh, We know that when he came back to the Oval Office, he essentially spent the entire afternoon watching television and refusing requests by, again, everyone around him to call the riot off. That when he tweeted that tweet saying that Mike Pence didn't do his duty, that he knew that people uh, in the riot were essentially looking for Mike Pence to potentially harm or kill him. And so all of that strikes me as extraordinarily damning when it comes to how we think about Trump's moral responsibility and also his legal responsibility. Alan Rosenstein, who's a Lawfare senior editor, and Judge Sugarman have written on Lawfare that this this evidence potentially crosses the line into what you might need to show that Trump incited a riot under the high standard for First Amendment and incitement. So all of that is new. All of it is incredibly striking and damning. I will say just one quick point, um, because I know I've been going on for a while. When you speak about how the committees use the hearings, Ben, I think that one thing that is important to remember, and Molly kind of got to this saying that the the media environment is very different from Watergate, the committee is operating in an environment where it's it's battling for people's attention through a number of different sources. Um, you know, that there's uh, Twitter, there's Facebook, there's all different kinds of cable networks that wasn't present during the Watergate hearings. And so I do think that they may have made a calculation, you know, we need to present our evidence in as tight, as gripping, as direct a manner as possible. And that may have meant, I think it did mean making things very sort of performed, scripted, careful to keep that tight narrative line rather than having the shagginess of a hearing where, you know, what they're discovering things in real time, which could lead viewers to turn away or look at something else.
0: All right. So, Natalie, we have on the one hand this radical presentation of a whole lot of new material some of which is kind of different in kind from what we knew before. And in the period immediately surrounding it, all of a sudden, the Justice Department investigation seems to heat up quite dramatically, up to and including this week's execution of a search warrant at Mar-a-Lago, which does not appear to be as part of the 1-6 uh, investigation, but you know it kind of feels related somehow so to what extent do you think it is the 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 widespread impression that the committee has lit a fire under the justice department's ass is a is a, a fair interpretation or to what extent do you think these are basically parallel tracks that are or have come to fruition or are coming to fruition roughly in parallel to one another.
1: Yeah, I think this is the source of a lot of discussion and um, and debate. And in fact, some listeners and readers, I guess, in this case, will recall um, Quinta and I wrote a piece um, and Ben wrote a piece proposing the alternate view on on this very question of whether the Department of Justice was investigating sort of aggressively enough and whether it was playing an appropriate role given the really truly unprecedented nature of of what Donald Trump appears to have done. I think it's also important though in this context to remember as we've stressed repeatedly that the the purposes of the committee and the justice department are very different and their investigatory powers are very different and the standards by which they need to do their investigations are very different because congress is building a publicly available sort of report of its findings for the purpose of providing evidence and information to the public whereas the justice department has to in the course of its investigation look to make a case so they need to find evidence for the purpose of eventually admitting it in court which is subject to a whole bunch of rules don't exist in the congressional context. And they have to do it in a manner that is gathering evidence for the purpose of proving elements of crimes, which is just a totally different way of organizing and thinking about facts. That said, I think there, there is a possibility, and I think a good one, that part of what Congress has been able to accomplish through these hearings is to change the perception of Donald Trump and to change the perception of what really happened here. I think the the committee spent a lot of time, as Quinto was describing, proving that Donald Trump knew a lot of things that I think were previously contested and and still are contested in some places. For example, little things like did he really know that he did not win the election? Was he being told by advisors? And he was. It turns out he was being told not only by White House lawyers, but also by campaign advisors, by policy advisors, by pretty much everyone except this small population that Quinta mentioned. But the the fact may be, and I think there is some polling to support this, that the perception of of Donald Trump as having been culpable in some respect for what happened on January sixth is, is changing, um, even among Republicans. And you know what that means exactly is varies because I, I don't remember uh of the polls that I've seen that indicate some of this and it is not a dramatic shift, I should say. I, I believe that they uh looked more at, you know, whether Trump is culpable in some sort of moral sense. You know, that's very different than was he guilty of crimes, that, you know, crimes have to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. And um, it's subject to a different process, but it's also a different conception of, of guilt or culpability. I, I think there's there's reason to think that the committee's effect of bringing forth all of this information certainly caused a lot of people in the public to ask, well, does the Justice Department know about this? Is it is it blind to it or is the investigation ongoing and very quiet and we don't know about The fact that the investigation has uncovered all of this information, or is it that the investigation didn't get here? I I will say on this one point, there was some reporting after one of the committee hearings, after the Cassidy Hutchinson hearing, which I apologize, I don't remember which one that was, maybe the sixth, that the Justice Department was not aware of some of what Cassidy Hutchinson testified to, much of which was really staggering new information. That is the one sort of fact that I can point to in reporting that suggests that the Justice Department really may have been spurred on by something the committee found directly.
0: Quinto, what do you think? Is it appropriate to conclude that the Justice Department has, to one extent or another, been spurred by the committee? Is it not appropriate to conclude that? Or or inappropriate to conclude that, or is it kind of a head scratcher?
4: Well, I'll I'll say I personally believe deeply that the Justice Department made this move because of Maya Natalie's piece, and I I will not be convinced otherwise. Um, In in all seriousness, that's (laughs) obvious. I I,
0: I mean, there's no doubt that they're reading and responding regularly to Lawfare. The question is whether whether they're responding to the committee.
4: So I I think it is a head-scratcher, honestly. I think that you can tell the story in a couple different ways. One is that the Justice Department was sort of going along, conducting its investigation, and the committee really did give it a kick in the pants in the way that certainly uh, Liz Cheney clearly wants, wanted to do, sort of constantly calling out the Justice Department and saying, you know, we think we have evidence of criminal activity on Trump's part. The recent spur of activity that we've seen from the department is consistent with that. Um, You know, that this is an investigation that was kind of moving along and then got really a shot in the arm and now is uh, kind of has a rocket ship strapped to its back. On the other hand, you can also say maybe the maybe the Justice Department has been working along and they would have gotten to these steps even without the the committee presenting this new information. So I think it's it's genuinely hard to say. It does strike me that the the fact that the justice department investigations seem to begin to move forward aggressively right around when the committee was uh, finishing up its slate of hearings and that we did have reporting in the New York Times that the department wasn't aware of what Hutchinson had to provide, that she was then cooperating with the department, that, that timing, if it's a coincidence, it's a hell of a coincidence. Um, but I don't think there's really any way to know until we see more reporting on the subject. Yeah,
1: and I'll just add one quick thing to that, which is that I think a question here, which we will not be able to find the answer to, um, except perhaps historians years from now, is to the extent the Justice Department did have investigations going on prior to this. I mean, certainly we know they were doing a lot of investigating relating to January 6th. They've done an incredible amount of prosecuting of rioters who were at the Capitol. But the question is, and this may intersect with the effect of the committee, is to the extent it had investigation or investigations that were focused on Trump or where Trump was a potential down-the-line subject or target, what was the scope of that investigation? So were they looking only, for example, at whether Trump could be eventually found guilty of inciting a riot that later attacked the U.S. Capitol? Or were they looking at investigating the full... of potentially criminal activity that Trump engaged in after the election um, in terms of trying to reverse the outcome of the election. There are a lot of different story threads here that the committee has go- gone through, including you know, the, the machinations to put pressure on state legislatures, um, the alternative electors, the efforts to uh, try to convince Mike Pence that he had the legal authority, which he does not. To essentially reject the um, electoral count. So the question is, you know, was maybe DOJ was doing an investigation or, or maybe it was investigating all of these different threads, but is it possible that it had actually a narrower investigation that involved Trump? And then the committee sort of convinced it to to broaden the scope.
3: Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel,
0: founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
4: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: You can really argue this both ways. And one of the problems here is that the committee's investigation has been really you know, turned outward to the public. And the Justice Department investigation, of course, has not, and so we're reading tea leaves about it, uh, and we're reading them badly, as as this week's Mar-a-Lago action shows, you know, which nobody saw coming. You know, the area where the Justice Department's investigation or investigations is most advanced and matured is an area that, you know, really doesn't have anything to do at least not on the surface, with January 6th, although it does have to do with the sort of apparent crime spree that the president was on in the latter days of the administration. So, Molly, take a look forward for us. Uh, The committee uh, was originally only going to do I think six or seven hearings, it ended up doing eight and then announcing that it was going to do more in September. What do we know about what the committee has planned other than its written report?
3: Yeah, so first I want to uh, say something about the observation you just made um, about the fact that they had a plan and then they had to change the plan, which is that that is a reality of uh, congressional investigations, that no amount of planning or no amount of effort to do all of your investigating first and then do all of your telling the world about it second can uh, prepare you for, which is that, you know, you will have a hearing and then more information or different, uh, different framing may seem useful, uh, and so you you come in and you have to uh, change course. You're right that they um, they have said that they intend to do more hearings when Congress returns from its recess fully in September. We don't know too much about what those hearings might be about, and then uh, they will produce a report. And really, the. Um, as Quinta and I have been sort of talking about for quite some time. The biggest constraint on all of this from for the committee is the clock. And the expectation is that Republicans will take control of the House in November. I will not prognosticate further on how likely that is, but I think it is still the expectation. Uh, and so at that point, um, the committee has until the end of the year um, to take all of the information um, that it that it has, and put it into some sort of um, final document. There's been a lot of conversation about, you know, whether the committee should also make any quote unquote criminal referrals, which really would just be, you know, the committee saying, hey, Department of Justice, we think this is what you should do. They don't really have any force or effect. There's also a question of whether the committee will make any kind of legislative recommendation. So under its authorizing resolution, it cannot itself report out legislation, but it can, if it wants to, um, make some proposals that would then be in the purview of other committees. Um, At this point, we've reached a point in the Congress where it's unlikely that, you know, any of the those things would actually um, see action, uh, but it, it would be um, notable if the if the committee made some specific recommendations, particularly ones that, for whatever reason, might actually have legs in the in the next Congress. Here, I would be thinking mainly about things related to increasing um, security of the Capitol complex itself, which is a really important issue. Um, I'll kind of plug the recent episode of our podcast series, "The Aftermath," where one of the things that the most recent episode covers is the efforts in the immediate months following January 6th, before the select committee got started by other congressional committees to address some of those concerns about kind of the readiness of the Capitol Police, the shortcomings of the Capitol Police's intelligence infrastructure, that sort of thing. So we'll see if they make any recommendations um, on that front. There's been some rumblings for a while that they um, might wade into the broader discussion about reforming the Electoral Count Act. Um, The most, Ripe proposal for doing that. Um, so that's the law that uh, stipulates how exactly uh, the process of, among other things, exactly the process of counting the electoral votes. So, what Congress was doing uh, during the insurrection, um, how that process unfolds. Um, there's a, a ripe proposal proposal for reforming that in the Senate. done a lot of coverage of that on Lawfare, so I'd also refer listeners to that. But I think it will just be kind of how much more can they get done in the next several months before the end of the year.
0: So uh, you said you don't want to prognosticate on the election, but I am going to ask you to prognosticate on something else, which is, you know, the committee announced rather flamboyantly in the last hearing that they were going to be back in september with more and it seems to me that for liz cheney and benny thompson cheney was chairing that hearing because because thompson was was ill with COVID. for them to announce that it seems to me they must have a pretty good sense of why they're coming back and one possibility that occurred to and some others is that they are coming back to talk about the evidence of witness tampering that they have alluded to previously. But another possibility is that they're coming back because they have, you know, more information that has developed as a result of people coming forward in response to their hearings, which they've also kind of boasted about. And so I'm, I'm, I'm curious for your interpretive sense of what they're likely to come back in order to do, given that they presumably didn't announce that with no agenda in mind.
3: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And I don't have a great answer. Um, I think both of the possibilities that you just sketched out are plausible. I think there's also You know when we did these uh space i think the first of these spaces um after the very first of this set of hearings in june we talked about kind of what did we personally um want to know most from the set of hearings Um, and so selfishly i would be curious to know if they'll return to any of the questions about what um, members of Congress might have known and been involved with. So we've seen kind of in the like broader scope of other investigations um, that are happening right now, we've seen, for instance, uh, Representative Scott Perry uh, have his cell phone seized, I believe, by the FBI. Um, And so the idea that there are There are still a lot of unanswered questions about what happened on the 6th itself, uh, I think is important. Whether that's what they will take up in um, September, I don't know. Um, The other thing I would be curious to know if they will return to in more detail are some of these questions around sort of what were the failures that made the insurrection sort of as uh, as serious as it was um, in terms of things around the delay in having the National Guard come to The capital and that sort of thing. So I don't know is the the short answer, but I do think there are a number of things that I would be interested to see them talk about, and I think both of the things you sketched out um, are are certainly possible. And I think um, we'll just have to we'll just have to see.
0: As Trump will say, would say, we'll see what happens. Quinta and then Natalie, do you guys have forecasts on this score? What what? the September outlook for the committee looks like?
4: It's a puzzle, honestly. I mean, I can identify things that I would love to see them speak to, but I I don't know if they'll be able to. So, I mean, one of the big questions that I think remains outstanding from their hearings is, Whether or not there was any kind of communication between Trump, Trump associates, the White House, and the people on the ground on January 6th. So the Oath Keepers, the Proud Boys, for example, because that would provide a a kind of a link between the planning for the physical riot and the riot itself and Trump, which has so far been absent, um, when when we're talking at least about seditious conspiracy. That said, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that the committee is going to tackle that. Um, there, there are a lot of other questions that remain open. Obviously, as Molly says, the question of uh, involvement of members of Congress potentially Um, I think there are also questions, and Ben, you and I have been kicking this dead horse relentlessly, about the failure of intelligence and law enforcement agencies, particularly the FBI, to do basically anything in advance of the 6th. That said, again, uh, as Molly and I have been saying, they're, they're really on a tight clock here. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if what the committee decided to do was steer away from those sort of different areas that they haven't touched yet and focus more on providing more more depth um, on the the matters that they already have discussed presumably in areas that you know in putting forward evidence that we haven't yet seen but i just don't think there's really any way to know natalie your thoughts and then
0: i will give my big bold bad prediction
1: (laughs) So I think most of my expectations, uh, Molly and Quinta have already mentioned, and I, I do think Quinta is right that it's unlikely that the committee will seize on additional themes that they plan to present, just for for timing purposes. Although it's possible they've been, you know, preparing one all along. Uh, that seems unlikely, given that on the at the very first hearing, Chairman Thompson outlined the seven points that they were planning to prove through the course of the hearing so I, I suppose it's possible that over the course of the last eight hearings they they came up with an eighth i think the the two other things that i think would be very interesting in addition to what quinta and molly have already mentioned is whether they're able to present more evidence of what trump knew or was saying um, on the sixth or or in previous days um, So one of the hearings was dedicated to showing what Trump did not do on the 6th. It was on those 187 minutes where uh, they had a lot of testimony from people who were around Trump, but really they, they were showing what the absence of action was based on what Trump knew contemporaneously. I think it would be interesting if any of the new evidence that they are gathering, perhaps, as we were saying, because of the public nature of these hearings and, and perhaps more people are coming forward to provide relevant testimony, You know, could any of that testimony provide more information about what Trump was saying, what he knew, so that we could get a little more insight into what was in his head? I, I would be surprised by that, but it will be interesting. Another theme or another uh, set of evidence that I would love to hear about, but I, I suspect is unlikely, is about the Secret Service. So people are probably aware there's, there's been, in a different context, um, real outrage over the uh, fact that the Secret Service seems to have deleted a whole bunch of text messages from the period around January 6th. But, you know, are there any Secret Service agents who have decided to come forward um, and testify before the committee and provide new information from the perspective of the Secret Service? We we learned a fair amount about um, what the Secret Service, who was guarding Mike Pence, was experiencing on the 6th while they were trying to protect him from mobs who were threatening to kill him, uh, including the fact that many of them were calling, making calls over the radio asking for people to tell their, their loved ones that they love them because they were afraid they were gonna die. But, you know, there may be more from Secret Service agents who who were guarding Trump, perhaps. And, you know, whether we will ever get more information about the allegation that Cassidy Hutchinson mentioned, having heard about secondhand that Trump was so insistent on going to the Capitol after his speech at the Ellipse that he tried to grab the steering wheel of his vehicle um, and the Secret Service had to stop him. You know, I don't know, but it would be very interesting to hear more from or about the Secret Service.
0: All right. I'm just going to give very briefly my own sense of what's going on here, which is that The committee clearly had a few walk ins uh, over the course of their hearings. They learned some new stuff. They are investigating it and they wanted to encourage other walk ins. So they announced that they were not done. They were coming back after August, which basically gave everybody, you have the month of August to be the storyteller, not the subject of the story here. And there's an element of Uh, I say this in the nicest possible use of the word, extortion here. They are basically saying to everybody in a kind of Bob Woodward-like way, do you want to be the source or do you want to be the subject? And you have the month of August to think about it, to come in. And when we come back in September, we're telling more stories and they may be about you. And I think it's it's a very clever way to set up the next side, uh, the next series of these, the the wrinkle to it is if it doesn't work, if people don't come in, you end up with an embarrassingly thin uh, set of hearings. All right. Let's go to audience questions for which we have the voice of God, Tyler McBrien, uh, reading the questions. Tyler, uh, the floor is yours.
2: Yes. Well. I think we have a question here about the relationship between uh, the January 6th committee and DOJ. Um, This tweeter would like to know why there is or was apparent January 6th committee reticence to share materials with DOJ. Surely it serves the ends of justice for the DOJ to get stuff expeditiously. Is it a resourcing issue or something else?
0: So it's a really interesting question, and I don't think anybody fully knows the answer to it at this stage here is what I know and uh, if y'all have stuff to add to it, please do. The Justice Department, I think, wanted uh, access to some of those transcripts because it had uh, Brady obligations and discovery obligations in coming criminal cases, as well as it needed to know what certain people had said under oath in connection with those cases. Uh, Why the committee was shy about producing that stuff to justice uh, is a bit of a mystery, actually, and I don't purport to understand it. Uh, There do seem to have been some tensions there which are not uncommon in the context of concurrent investigations, but actually usually go the other direction. That is that the congressional investigators want material that the Justice Department has gotten its hands on, and the Justice Department is uh, understandably uh, uninterested in providing that stuff. So this seems to be going the other direction. Um, Quinta, Natalie, Molly, if you have additional thoughts on it, please uh, jump in.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'd be curious to know what Molly's thoughts are. I will say, my read at least, is that they're I I don't know what prudential considerations were, certainly, if you think of this as part of the sort of interbranch push and pull. I I did wonder if there was a little bit of kind of how do you like them apples um, on the the part of the committee, that this is an opportunity to kind of turn the table, particularly given that notably, I believe, the, the tussle over the transcripts either started or escalated after the Justice Department announced that it would not be prosecuting Mark Meadows for contempt of Congress, despite the fact that Congress had referred that out for Meadows' refusal to comply with subpoenas from the January 6th committee. Now, you can look at that and say, if that's all it is, that's a bit middle school. You can look at it and say, if that's all it is, you know, that that's how, uh, inter-branch tensions resolve themselves. Um, it does seem to me that there's probably something more, but I do think that keeping in mind the committee's ability to kind of turn the tables on a branch that has historically refused to provide information to Congress is is also important context. Molly, do you think I'm wrong there? No, I mean, that um,
3: that's basically my read of the situation as well, um, that particularly given the experience of... Congress trying to investigate any number of things about the Trump administration when Trump was actually in office um, and the kind of continued um, escalation of resistance on the part of the executive branch to provide information to Congress that Congress was asking for, that I read this as in part because of kind of my perspective, um, largely in the the separation of powers conflict context, um, but uh, I'm sure there may have been other more tactical considerations as well. Yeah, the only
1: thing that I um, think is perhaps another plausible explanation is it may be the case that you know the the committee clearly has a purpose here in in telling a story. And demonstrating that it's its belief that Donald Trump is culpable again, not in a criminal sense, but uh, is culpable and should be held to account for his for his conduct, and and it's possible that they really wanted to fulfill that purpose and really wanted to be able to complete its work and and made the calculation that if DOJ was going to take. Uh, The partial investigation that that Congress had done and begin acting on it, that perhaps some of the witnesses that were cooperating with Congress would sort of change their focus and perhaps stop cooperating or stop being such useful um, sources of information for the, the committee's purposes Um, If it were the case that they learned from DOJ that they were uh, subjects or even might become targets of a criminal investigation, that would certainly have the effect of shutting you up.
2: All right. Our next question comes from at Dan Alert. Uh, Dan asks, would a member with DOJ oversight responsibilities be briefed on the Mar-a-Lago raid? Um, And I think we can probably broaden this to, you know, has the Mar-a-Lago search changed anything for you in in how you think about the JAN6 committee?
0: All right. So I will answer the purely factual question at the start of it, which is whether a member at, who has DOJ oversight would be briefed on the raid. Uh, the answer to that is no. The Justice Department uh, generally does not share information about ongoing uh, law enforcement operations, including with its oversight committees, there are limited exceptions to that, but they would not include operational conduct uh, like the execution of a search warrant. Uh, Remember that the material in question is almost certainly very highly classified. And so the ability to characterize it at all might be limited. Uh, In addition, there may be grand jury material involved Uh, If, for example, they know about this because of something that a witness told them before a grand jury, you can't talk about that. It's actually a crime to talk about that. And that goes as well for subpoenas, which are issued by grand juries. So I I think the likelihood that there is any briefing to any uh, congressional committee or member is uh, trivially small.
1: Yeah, the one thing I'll just add as a a point of clarification, um, just for semantic purposes, is uh, that is certainly the case if what the question meant was related to oversight in the sense of congressional oversight of DOJ. If what was intended was about whether um, leadership of DOJ would have knowledge or whether the White House would have knowledge, um, it is certainly the case that the White House is very unlikely to have knowledge, um, and that's that's been the reporting, uh, that the White House did not have any knowledge of this. Um, that is common and appropriate. Um, it's with extremely rare circumstances that DOJ should be communicating about ongoing investigations with the White House. However, it is possible, and I think some of us have speculated, is likely that um, DOJ leadership, so um, including the Attorney General and the Deputy Attorney General, may have been made aware of this warrant and uh, the plan for executing it before it was done.
0: I can't imagine that the Justice Department senior leadership did not know about it and approve it.
4: Yeah, I think that's right.
2: Tyler, any other questions? Yes, we have one more um, of a spicier question. I would say, uh, this this tweeter would like to know if Trump's and coup plotters' apparent coziness with and confidence in the Supreme Court to assist their cause is to be investigated, and then adding on the perennial question, is Ginny Thomas ever going to be questioned?
0: Quinta, Molly, do either of you have thoughts on the on the Ginny Thomas committee matter?
3: So the one thing I'll say on this, I don't have any. Thoughts on whether or not they're actually likely to question her. But I will say that the issue of whether to question her has been one of the very small number of areas of disagreement among members of the committee um, that has surfaced publicly. So to go back to my very opening comments about the ways in which uh, this investigation and this work by a congressional committee is really different than what we usually see by congressional committees, the amount of agreement among members, at least the amount of public agreement, is... Really uh, unusual. So even on kind of well functioning congressional committees, we often see various kinds of disagreements within the committee among the members rise to the surface. And we have seen that in very few uh, situations with this committee, Um, and certainly much, many fewer situations than we'd expect for a committee doing The kind of work at the profile that this work, this committee is doing its work. And so um, I don't know the I don't know what's going to happen. But I, I do think it's worth just pointing out that this is one area where I think there has been some disagreement among the members.
4: Yeah, just to just to add to that. Uh Molly is certainly right. I think when the the issue of Jenny Thomas's involvement in January 6th was first reported, I believe the New York Times had some reporting that Liz Cheney was not enthusiastic about getting Thomas to come in. That said, I I have noticed that over the last few uh months, Cheney has seemed to become a lot more open to that. It looks like uh at the end of July, Cheney indicated that uh, and this is a quote. We certainly hope that Thomas will agree to come in voluntarily, but the committee is fully prepared to contemplate a subpoena. If she does not, I hope it doesn't get to that. So to me, at least that indicates that, you know, while there certainly were, was that disagreement earlier on, that disagreement may have faded and that uh, may speak to what uh, has come out about Thomas's involvement and, and the fact that it may be, have been enough to convince Cheney otherwise. I will just add to that, that I'm not
0: sure how much realistically there is to be learned uh, from an interview with Ginny Thomas, uh, since the question that everybody has for her is, you know, were you back-channeling material on your activities to your husband, uh, which of course would be privileged under the the marital privilege, there's no way they're going to get testimony from her on this. So I I do think that the likelihood that a Jenny Thomas interview, even if it takes place, would be a total bust is non-trivial, except to the extent that she may have been in in significant uh, communication with John Eastman. All right. We have come up against our time limit. And of course, Lawfare Live tries to begin on time and end on time. So we are going to wrap up. Quinta Jurassic Tyler McBrien, Natalie Orpit, Molly Reynolds, thank you all for joining us. And thank you to the audience for joining us. Uh, we will be back next time. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our heroic audio engineer. This episode is Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, who did the Twitter spaces thing with the Zencaster thing. You can't imagine. You need to do your part to support the Lawfare Podcast. So get on it, folks. Become a material supporter of Lawfare, which you can do at Patreon.com/slash/Lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the globe-trotting Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.
4: This message comes from Bof sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it.